Simply put, it's grace. It's grace that God would take the nation that spit in his face. Tell them that they are his people and call them to speak his name in more than just steeples. It's grace that transcends sinner and saint. Grace that heals the lame and brings life to the faint. Grace is for the undeserving, and this feeling is overwhelming. That a slave and a sinner, in his eyes, is first place, considered a winner. It is grace that in the death of one, in the perfect sacrifice of God's only Son, that life may be found. Grace is bold. When grace takes hold, it transforms, transcends. It is before us, and it is at our end. It is to our left and to our right. In the darkest of nights, it shines as the brightest light. Simply put, it's grace. It's grace because it's not us. It's grace because it is unending, forever, all-powerful, undeserving, redeeming. It is God. To have grace on a hundred thousand, on a million, on the broken-hearted, the orphan, the jobless, the broken marriages, those who believe there is no hope will find that grace is for the hopeless, for you and me, for we are all undeserving of a grace unending, a grace we have all been shown. And in this lifeless dirt he has sown the new garden of Eden, showered in grace, we grow and we thrive in his name. We have seen grace, and we will never be the same. In grace, we have been made new. God, we are just ordinary, normal humans, and everything that we will do this morning is very ordinary and very normal. And yet you have sent us your word that we can know you truly, that we can actually know you, the creator God, the holy one, the gracious one, because you have spoken to us. And what Christians have found through the ages for 2,000 years is that you show up, you send your spirit to enlighten our minds and our hearts so that we can understand your word. And Christians through the ages have discovered that you give life to your people through your word. You use it to correct us when our thinking is wrong. You use it to give us hope when we're on the edge of despair. You use it to reshape who we are. God, I pray that this morning you would do that. We need your Holy Spirit to work among us for this to be anything other than a very human, ordinary, powerless event. In your grace, God, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would show up this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, way back in the day, I was a trumpet player in our high school band. Uh, I'm not a very good trumpet player, but uh, nonetheless, I was able to play, and it was fun. Uh, I still remember the experience of uh, the first time our band director would hand out new music. So, you know, each section would get their little sheets and stuff, and, you know, first trumpet, second trumpet, all this kind of thing. Uh, 
and one of the things you have to understand about um, our school is that it was only 120 students. It's a very small high school, which means that there are no tryouts for anything. The basketball team didn't have tryouts. The hockey team didn't have tryouts. And the band didn't have tryouts. Anyone who wanted to be part of any of the school activities was able to do that. And you also have to understand that our band director this particular year was very young. She was fresh out of college, uh, just barely a few years older than some of the senior boys. And uh, from all appearances, she was a little bit intimidated by a few of the seniors in the uh, trumpet section in particular. So she would hand out music to us, and the first thing we do is just try to run from the beginning to the end, run all the way through the song to see, see at least how far we could make it. But So with that information, that we're a small school. Anyone who wants to participate can, and it's a very young uh, band director with not a lot of experience and maybe a little bit of fear tied into that, a lot of nervousness. You can imagine how that first run-through of a brand-new song sounded, right? The band director is valiantly putting this effort into keeping time and, and motioning to different sections and calling out when their big parts were... But really, it was just a losing battle, right? Uh, you've got the, the trumpet players like me who are very bad at sight reading or kind of muddling through all the parts that we can, and the, the trombones are over there arguing of, of, with tempo for the clarinets in front of them and, and the percussions all over the place. They're not sure where we are. So you get this big, huge cymbal crash about half a measure late or maybe three or four measures late. And it's just this huge mess. No one is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Everyone's off, and the whole thing just sounds terrible. I don't think we ever made it all the way through a complete complete song. We had to stop usually in the first 30 seconds or so to kind of regroup, try a few sections, and then move on. But if you fast forwarded a few months and happened to go to a, one of these band concerts, and, and if on that particular band concert night uh, people were playing pretty well, you, you'd notice something of a, a small miracle. Everyone was doing what they were supposed to be doing. Everyone was playing their part like they were supposed to be playing it, and the whole thing sounded halfway decent. Not too bad. We actually made it through the song, at least. Well, it's a little bit of of where we are in the book of Jonah this morning, because it starts with this big mess. The the beginning of the book of Jonah is very messy. God calls his prophet Jonah to go and to proclaim this message, and of course, Jonah goes the opposite direction as far as he can, gets on the ship, then there's this big sea storm. He gets thrown overboard to what's going to be his death. This giant fish swallows him. No one's doing what they're supposed to be doing, or at least Jonah's not doing what Jonah's supposed to be doing, and the whole thing is a wreck. And now we get to chapter 3, and we get a second chance. It's like the book has started over, and we, and we get to sort of have another chance at this whole Jonah going to Nineveh with the message of God thing. It's like the book restarts now. And the remarkable thing that we're going to find, given the history of chapters 1 and 2, is that in Jonah 3, everyone does what they're supposed to do, and everything works out great. So let's look at this chapter here. If you haven't turned there in your Bible, this is a good time to do that. Um, If you don't have a a Bible, you can use the Pew Bibles. It's found on page 917, Jonah chapter 3. So let's see how each of the uh, parties involved in this uh, interaction do what they are supposed to do. And we have to start, of course, with Jonah himself. Verses 1 and 2 of Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So God is telling him to do the same thing that he had already told him to do at the very beginning of the book of Jonah. This is a recap, a rehash of Jonah 1, 1 and 2. God's telling him the same thing. So it's basically a, a restart of the book of Jonah. Jonah gets a second chance. So what is he going to do this time? Verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. 
Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So last time, Jonah gets up and he runs away as far away as he can. This time, Jonah actually does what he's supposed to do. And this is highlighted by the, the precision of the, uh, the verbs that are repeated here. So God says in verse 2 that his instructions are, go and proclaim. And then you look at what Jonah does. He goes, verse 3, he went, and verse 4, he is proclaiming. So he is doing precisely what God has called him to do. Now, we'll get to the content of his message uh, in a moment here, but for now, we see that Jonah is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. So he has repented, turned away from his rebellion against God, and now he's doing what God has called him to do. Now, I have to admit, though, that I'm not terribly impressed with uh, Jonah at this point. It's, it's hardly surprising that he's uh, changing his course and actually obeying God at this point, right? If you had been thrown into the sea for dead, and if you had been swallowed by a giant fish, you would probably do the same thing that he's doing, right? The consequences of disobedience are just too great. So, of course, he's going to do this. Right? I mean, think about it. Even, even a dog can learn this. So, say you've got a dog, and you don't have a fence, but you want your dog to be able to play in the yard. The weather's great, but you don't want to go through all the effort and all the cost of putting up a, a big fence. So, what you do is get one of these underground, invisible electric fences and one of these shock collars for your dog, right? Because you want your dog to not be on a leash, be able to play around all these things, but but you want to stay in your yard. So you dig the fence in, you put the fence in, you put the collar on your dog, and you go and you have this stern talking to your dog. And you tell your dog that it has to stay within these boundaries, this side of the sidewalk. And you shake your finger at it to show that you are serious about this. And then you go inside. Does the dog obey? Of course not. The dog is going to go and go to the edge of that because it wants to, it's thinking, freedom, I can go now. So it goes to the edge, and then suddenly, electric shock. So it stops in its track, it backs up. That was not pleasant. I don't really want to do that again. But then there's a squirrel over there on the other side. And so it's like, well, okay, I'm just going to go get the squirrel. Try over here. So it runs over there. Again, shock. Okay, unless the dog is unusually stubborn and unresponsive, eventually the dog is going to obey, right? Eventually the dog is going to stay inside the electric fence. The cost of disobeying is just too high. Well, that's Jonah, right? He's doing what even a dog can learn to do. The cost of disobeying God is just too high. He doesn't want to get thrown overboard again. He doesn't want to get swallowed by a fish again and have be vomited out of this fish. It's probably a pretty gross experience. He doesn't want this to happen again, right? And so he decides he's finally going to obey God. He, Jonah has learned that he can't get away from the call of God. Of course, I'm being a bit, I'm being a bit hard on Jonah, right? He, he is, after all, doing what he's supposed to be doing. But we're going to find out in chapter 4 that his heart's not really in it. He's not really happy about this task that God has given him. Uh, and actually, chapter 4, which we're going to get to next week, is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I think it's probably the funniest chapter there is. And usually when we tell the story of Jonah, we don't get to that chapter. So make sure you come back next week. It'll be really funny. Um, I don't promise it's going to be funny, but I think it's funny. But in any case, where we are here is that, that Jonah's story reminds us that, that when God calls us to do something, he's serious about it. He's going to actually have us do that. Jonah rejects the mission and runs, and yet in the end, God gets him back there and sends him on the same mission, so he ends up having to do it anyway. That's something to think about next time God tells you to do something, right? Sooner or later, you're going to have to do it. You might as well avoid the pain and avoid the whole mess of running away from him and just do what he says in the first time. In any case, what we see in the first section here is we look at Jonah. Jonah himself is doing what he's supposed to do. He goes and he proclaims 
to Nineveh. So now we get the second party in our story, the people of Nineveh. How are they going to respond to this message? Jonah has said, 40 more days and their city is destroyed. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, we learned in Jonah 3 and 4 that Nineveh is a big city. It's going to take him three days to go into the city. And, and we see that in verse 4, he's gone a day into it and proclaimed this message. Before he can even finish his task of preaching through the city in three days, this grassroots effort starts where the people of Nineveh are spreading the message ahead of him so that everyone in Nineveh is hearing about this. They believe that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And so all of them, from top to bottom on the social scale and on the age spectrum, are repenting. They're, they're putting on uh, sackcloth, this rough fabric, and they are fasting. These are expressions of repentance. Eventually, the message reaches the king, and he makes it official. Verse 6, When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So the people are already acting in repentance. They're already fasting. They're already putting on the sackcloth, this rough fabric. And now the king's going to make it even stricter. Now it's not just uh, people, but animals too. A, a citywide fast. Everyone here, every living thing is not going to even taste food. They're not going to even get a sip of water. They need to repent. And not only that, they need to cry out to Jonah's God. Right? This isn't a God that they normally worship. They normally uh, attack the people who worship this God. But now they're going to call out to the true God. They're going to call out to Jonah's God for uh, compassion. And on top of all that, the king says that they've got to actually change their behavior. Turn from your wickedness. Turn from your violence. This is, is a big deal. Now, why are they doing this if they know that they're going to be destroyed? The message, right, is 40 more days and the city will be destroyed. So why don't they just kind of live it up for these 40 days and then take what's coming to them? Well, the king puts it really well. He says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's a wonderful statement. See, these people don't know the true God but what are they doing? They are throwing themselves on the mercy of Israel's God, which is exactly what you should do if God proclaims judgment on you. So we see that just like Jonah's doing what he's supposed to be doing, the people of Nineveh are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're repenting and they're turning. They're throwing themselves on the mercy of God. Now, we have to understand this is a pretty big deal for a city like Nineveh. This isn't just sort of an ordinary city, relatively nice people, just kind of your run-of-the-mill people. The people of Nineveh are Assyrians. Nineveh is one of the big cities in, in the, the empire of Assyria, and Assyrians are really, really bad people. We get a couple hints of it in Jonah. Jonah 1-2 says, God says, their wickedness has come up before him. The king himself admits that there's violence and there's, there's evil in his city. But historical records show that they were really bad people. And listen to this account of who they were. The Assyrian kings were proud of their cruel and terrible reputation and went to great trouble and expense to record their exploits for posterity. 
Archaeologists have uncovered many reliefs, which are these large stone wall panels with carved descriptions, like the ones behind me here, of grisly post-battle scenes which were erected in palaces so they could be seen daily. In addition, written descriptions of post-battle tortures of prisoners were preserved on obelisks and cylindrical pillars. So one expert uh, um, kind of capsulized it, summarized it like this. It is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. I didn't get into too many of the details because they really are gruesome, and I don't want anyone to kind of lose their breakfast while we're here. The Assyrians are really bad people. They're awful. And they're proud of how violent they are. They're proud of all of these terrible things that they do to the people that they have conquered. So that such arrogant, bad people hear the word of God and take seriously what God says and actually humble themselves and repent, not eating anything, not drinking anything, putting on the scratchy fabric. That's a really remarkable thing. You wouldn't expect the Assyrians of all people to do this, and yet this is what they're doing. Now, what makes them do this? Why do they respond to this message? I mean, at one level, we might think, well, anyone who uh, hears that their whole city is going to be destroyed is going to have take some kind of action against it, right? But then think about the warnings that you've heard, right? You've heard warnings of doom and gloom before. I mean, even go to the Weather Channel sometime in the winter, and you get these, these huge, scary reports of a winter storm warning, and we're going to get something like 400 inches of snow, and it's going to be whiteout conditions. It's going to be terrible. Stay at home. Stay off the roads. Close up your doors and pretend that no one's home. Like, everyone stay inside. We're all going to die. I mean, these are the kind of things that you see when you get a winter storm weathering. And then if there's actually like six inches of snow in any major city, in the U.S., the Weather Channel is going to capitalize on that. They start using words like snowmageddon and snowpocalypse. And you want to say, what are you talking about? It's weather. It's snow. This happens every single year. And the thing is, it's not even just in the, the winter that you hear these things. I came across an article uh, this week that said uh, that there was going to be a pollen tsunami this spring. Okay. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I occasionally take some Claritin for it. But a pollen tsunami? Are you kidding me? I mean, we hear messages of doom all the time. Everyone wants to get everyone riled up. This is really scary stuff. But most of us, we hear this stuff, and it doesn't affect our lives. We realize this isn't a big deal, and we just move on. But the, the people of Nineveh realizes that what is, realize that what's being said here is really big. This is going to be the, the wiping out of their entire city. And the difference for them is that they actually believe the message. They believe that what Jonah says really comes from God, and they believe that God is actually strong and powerful enough to do what he said he's going to do. That's what makes the difference for them. It affects their lives, and they believe that it's true. And so they do what they're supposed to do. They repent. They stop doing what they were doing, and they throw themselves on the mercy of God. Okay, so Jonah does what he's supposed to do. People of Nineveh, they do what they're supposed to do. Now we get to the final party in our chapter. God himself, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So God sees what's happening. He sees that they have thrown themselves on his mercy and he has compassion on them. Now, some of us are going to hear this and think, well, wait a second. Jonah just said that they were going to be destroyed after 40 days. 
And if a prophet goes and brings a message and that message doesn't happen to be true, then that's a false prophet. And we might get a little bit worked up about, like, why is God making Jonah a false prophet? He, he goes to great lengths to make Jonah actually go to Nineveh when he didn't even want to go in the first place, and now all of a sudden, God's changing his mind, it looks like. But this is totally in line with God's character. God's not being inconsistent at all. This is what he said to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, he says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So God's doing exactly what's in line with his character. God says that he responds to people. He gives them a message and if they respond to that message, he's compassionate. He relents. Even if he's going to bring judgment, he relents. His compassion on the people. And that's really good news for sinners like you and me. Now, here's what we see in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah does what he's supposed to do, right? He preaches the message of God's impending doom and destruction of the people of Nineveh. And then the people of Nineveh do what they're supposed to do. They repent of their evil. They throw themselves on the mercy of God. And then God does what's in line with his character. He relents and has compassion even on these really bad people. So everything has worked out really well in Jonah chapter 3, which is a surprise and kind of a welcome relief after Jonah 1 and 2. Now we see everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing, and everything ends up good. So what do we do with this kind of a passage? The biggest thing that this passage teaches us is about the character of God, that he is a merciful and a compassionate God. That's the biggest theological takeaway for us uh, from this passage. I'm calling this series on the book of Jonah Shocking Grace for Bad People because that's what's happening here, right? The Assyrians are not nice people. They are these arrogant, sadistic terrorists. They deserve to be destroyed by God. And so God sends Jonah with a message of destruction. And yet these terrible people, these bad people, cry out to God, and God chooses not to destroy them. Why? Because of his grace. And the fact that his grace is, is even for the Assyrians, these awful people, that really is a shocking thing for those of us who consider ourselves good people. So it's God's grace for even really, really bad people. See, God doesn't want to destroy the, the Ninevites. He doesn't want to destroy anyone. He, he loves his people. We are his creation. What he wants is for us to turn away from our running away from God, to stop rejecting him. He wants us back for himself. That's why he's willing to, to pour out his compassion, his grace, his mercy, even on terrible people like the Ninevites, because he wants them back for himself. And the same is true for you and me. God doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to rescue us. That's why he sent Jesus in the first place, right? We're, we're running away from God. We're rejecting God. And, and he sends his own son to show us who he is and to rescue us from our rebellion against him. I, I try to say this week after week after week because this is a huge foundational truth. God is compassionate. He is gracious to anyone. It doesn't matter how bad you are or how much evil you've done because here's the reality it probably pales in comparison to everything that the Ninevites did. And look how God treated them with totally undeserved mercy and grace. He has compassion on them. So it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God's shocking grace for Nineveh is extended to you and me too. No matter how much bad we have done, how evil of people we are, God's grace is for us. But there's another really important piece here. Jonah 3 has to serve as a call to action for us. So God sent Jesus to rescue us, 
But we have to do something with that message. We have to actually respond to it, don't we? I mean, that's the message of God's grace. We continue to run away from God. We continue to reject Him. He sent His Son to go get us, but we have to actually respond to that message. I mean, that's how Jesus uses this story of Jonah and the, and the people of Nineveh turning uh, back to God. Luke chapter 3. He's kind of calling out the, the crowds of His day. Jesus says, this is Luke eleven twenty nine. He says, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man, which is Jesus, be to this generation. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jesus is calling them to action. He's saying, listen, you continue to run away from God. Jesus is the answer. He's the one who draws us back to God. But if you continue to reject Jesus, you're continuing to run toward destruction. The people of Nineveh hear of their impending destruction, and they throw themselves on God's mercy. They repent. They actually respond to the message. And every generation has to do that with Jesus. Stop running away from God. Stop rejecting Jesus and accept the gift of God's rescue. See, the Bible teaches us that we are in the same position as Nineveh. The truth about us is that we deserve destruction, and all of us are headed for destruction. Outside of Jesus, the truth is that we will spend eternity in hell. It's not a very nice statement, but it's the truth. Because we have rejected God, and because our, our root starting point is rejecting God, running away from Him, heading on the path of destruction. The good news is that God has sent Jesus to rescue us, to chase us down. And in his grace, he is chasing us down, just like he chased Jonah down. He's chasing him down because he wants to rescue us. But the takeaway is that we actually have to do something about that. If we continue to run away, we continue on the path of destruction. I mean, if the people of Nineveh don't repent, if they don't hear the message, believe it, and repent and turn and throw themselves on the mercy of God, what happens to their city? They're destroyed. The same is true for us. You and I, if we continue to run away from God, if we continue to reject Jesus, then we're, we're still on the path of destruction. We're offered the path of life, and yet we're still choosing the path of destruction. This is a message that demands a response. That's how Jesus uses this passage. He's saying, listen, when God gives you revelation, when he tells you what is happening, you actually have to respond to that. So we're going to make it very simple this morning. The choice that we have is between life and death, right? It's that simple. And you and I, every single one of us, has to make a choice between those two things. Will we continue to reject Jesus? Will we continue on that path? When the Bible says it very clearly, that's what leads to destruction. Or are we actually going to accept the gift of life that's offered in Jesus? And God's grace is there. It's for everyone. He's welcoming us with open arms. But you have to actually accept it. So it's between life and death. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, this is just another one of these pollen tsunami kind of things. It's just kind of a doom and gloom sort of message. But this is what the Bible says is true. Right? This is God's revelation to us. He, he gives us his word so that we're not kind of caught off guard, so that we can know how God thinks, who he is, and what he has done to rescue us. And our starting point is that path of destruction. So the choice that every one of us has to make is between destruction and forgiveness and life, death and life. So I, I, wanna, I want you to stop, and we're gonna give you, I'm going to give you a chance in a second here to really think through this. Where are you? What have you done with the message of Jesus? Do you believe it's true? Do you believe it's for you? 
If so, stop running away from God. Stop rejecting Jesus. You've got to accept him. I want, I want to pray with you. And, and as we pray, I'm going to give you moments here to be quiet before God and to, to ask him what he is doing in your heart and to ask specifically for you how you need to apply this message. We don't do this often, but I want to give you a chance to, to respond to the message, uh, message of Jonah right now. And after the service, like as usual, we'll have prayer ministers up here. If you want someone to pray with, please do that. But as we pray together here, I want to give you some space to think through this because this is the most important decision that you're going to make in your life. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to accept the message and receive God's life? Or are you going to continue to run away from God and go down the path of destruction? So please join me in prayer. I'm going to direct uh, your, your prayer a little bit here, and then we're going to continue to worship. So please pray with me. God, there are some of us here who do not know uh, Jesus. We, we don't know what to do with this message. It's, it's hard for us to get our minds around it, maybe. For those, God, who do not yet know the, the, the rescue, the freedom, the life that's found in Jesus. God, I pray that right now, in a few moments of silence, that you would confirm that you really love each one of us, that you are for us. Send your spirit in the silence now to confirm that message for us. And God, some of us need to repent. Whether or not we're followers of Jesus, whether or not we consider ourselves Christians, we are continuing to live in rebellion against you. We are continuing to run away from you. I pray now that you would speak clearly to us with your spirit to show us the areas in our life where we are rejecting you and where we need to stop and repent. God, speak to us. God, if we are holding you at arm's length, considering ourselves believers in Jesus, coming to church regularly, but there are just some parts of our life that, that we're not really willing to let you touch. Or you have told us to do something and we're not yet willing to do it. God, I pray right now that again you would send your spirit to convict. God, some of us probably don't understand this. We feel like we're, our hearts or our minds are just, there's not much going on there as we sit in silence. And for some of us, this is a very difficult thing because it will bring to mind areas of our life that we have held on to for a very long time that we are so scared of letting go or patterns of life, patterns of sin that we're, we're so worried about leaving or we're not sure how to break out of the cycle. And it's just possible for us to be sitting here and, and praying and to start to move toward despair and toward hopelessness. This is serious, God, but at the same time, I want us as a, as a community of faith, as those who have heard the message of Jesus, to once again come back to the good news 
that this doesn't have to end with sorrow, that that's not the point at all, that, that you have sent your Son to rescue us from all of this junk, that yes, you are calling us to repent, but you're calling us to repent with joy and with gladness because what you have in front of us is so much greater, so much better than anything we have held on to. God, you say that if any of us claims to not be a sinner, we're fooling ourselves. We're making you out to be a liar. It's not true. All of us are sinners. But then you say in the very next verse, in 1 John 1, 9, that if, we are, that if we confess our sin, you, God, are faithful and just. You will forgive us all of our sins in the name of Jesus, our Lord. And so there is good news for us this morning, God. Good news because of you, because you sent your Son in, your, in the, the shocking grace of, of, of your love for us, your compassion. You sent your Son to rescue us, bad people though we are. So God, I pray that more than anything, our hearts would swell in praise of your name so that all honor, all glory, all power be, be, be proclaimed to you for what you have done. You have given us far, far more than we deserve. God, work in our hearts. Allow us now as we, as we close our service in song to sing with joyful hearts because you have done so much for us. Move us to repentance, but then move us to joy at the great story of, of, of your reconciliation and redemption in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.